Father, bless these words to our hearts in Jesus' name. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Psalm 85. In verse 10, we're going to continue in what we started on Sunday. Sunday we touched the first portion of this passage. Today we're going to talk about the second one. The Word of God says there, Mercy and truth have met together, righteousness and peace kissed each other. I'm not going to reiterate the meaning of mercy and truth meeting together. You can listen to Sunday's message to hear that. But there's an important statement here, which is also a reflection of mercy and truth meeting together. That righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Now this is a picture of the cross. You are talking about righteousness and you are talking about peace. Just like we talked about mercy and truth. Truth was the vertical portion. Mercy was the horizontal portion. Meaning that truth was the word of God. Truth is Christ. Mercy is the expression of truth. Likewise here. Peace is that which is of God. Peace is you could say the vertical portion And righteousness is the horizontal portion. Righteousness is the manifestation in practical terms of peace. It says they kissed each other. That word is neshak. And it is a kiss and it refers to a union through submission. Righteousness is the product of peace. Now we must be careful not to confuse what peace actually is. In Isaiah 9, 6, Christ is the Prince of Peace. Christ is not the Prince of a feeling. He is the Prince, and a Prince is always this if someone is a Prince. He is a Prince of a place. He may be a prince of a worldly nation. In the case of Christ, he is the prince of the land known as peace, which of course is heaven, the new Jerusalem. Now, peace is a manifestation of the kingdom of God. Because he is a prince of peace, that makes him a ruler. In Hebrews 4.16, the throne of Christ is known as the throne of grace. That tells us that peace and grace are connected. They are part of the same government. Peace is the land, grace is the government. When we talk about peace, we have to realize we're not talking about an emotion or a feeling We're not even talking really about a sense of tranquility, albeit you might have a sense of tranquility when you are rightly related to the Prince of Peace. But it's not really talking about tranquility. It's talking about government. He is the Prince, therefore governing authority of peace. So righteousness and peace are unified. That means that the vertical and the horizontal manifestations of this one thing called peace, this place, this government, 
is unified. You cannot separate the horizontal portion from the vertical portion. Because the vertical portion is what determines the horizontal portion. The horizontal portion, righteousness, is the very manifestation and proof of peace. Now, if that is hard for you to understand, don't worry about it. We will explain this. However, you cannot maintain certain preconceived notions and always understand everything that the Bible is telling you. If you think that it really is about a sense of tranquility, then Romans 5, 3 to 5, is going to cause you some trouble. Because that is talking about a lack of tranquility. That is talking about how God uses tribulation in our lives. Yet at the same time, that tribulation has a manifestation that ends in a full-fledged anointing of love. And when that comes into our lives, that also in Galatians 5.6b connects us by faith to the government of God. And so we have to understand when the Bible is talking about principles of various types, it's really not concerned with addressing feelings, albeit feelings may become affected by the things the Word of God tells us. It's really concerned about the manifestation of truth, which is Christ's mind given to us in the Word of God. Righteousness has become united through submission with the kingdom of God known as peace. In Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God commanded the man in verse 16, saying, Eating you may eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you may not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, dying you shall die. This is how the original language puts it. Dying you shall die. Now, the Lord God commanded the man. That word is sava, commanded. It's a piel imperfect. Piel reflects an intensive or intentional action. And literally the word does mean to command or to charge. But because it is PL, it's no longer just God said, like you had several times in Genesis chapter 1. This takes it from the realm of simply God said, which would be the word Amar, the PL makes it stronger, establishing purpose. The imperfect tense expresses repetition. What it's really talking about, what it's really establishing here is government. And hence the word command. God gave a command. A command is with purpose and it is with expectation of obedience an expectation of submission on a continuing basis, repetition, the imperfect. 
And so, it's the establishment of government. If I realize that in this passage, God actually established government between him and the humans that were at the time on earth, which was just Adam and Eve. But one of the first things he did was he established this hierarchy in government. Now, that was not for any other purpose except for their protection. And also so that they would grow and learn and the authority would be present for them to learn, for them to grow. Now, in the Garden of Eden at the time, there were many trees. There were literal trees. But also in Ezekiel 31, those literal trees were representative of angels. So we know that in the garden there were trees, but there were also angels. Hence, there was necessity for protection. Because as we see with the serpent being indwelled by the enemy, not every angel in the garden was a holy angel. So the government of God was given for the protection of Adam and Eve. And the definition that he gave, the word that he gave them, saying, eating you may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat. Why? Because in Ezekiel 31.18, that was Satan's tree. That was the tree that would destroy, that would kill. For in the day that you eat of it, dying you shall die. Now, sometimes we have a tendency to think that this was a punishment. In the day that you will eat of it, you will have to be punished because you have transgressed my command, is how some people see this. This is not at all what it is saying. It was Satan's tree. They had at their disposal and they were encouraged to eat from the tree of life. But they were prohibited from eating from Satan's tree. Why? Because Satan brings death. To this day, Satan brings death. There are stories that people have told that they have witnessed, Christians have, of places in the world, certain places in Latin America, certain places in Africa, perhaps and probably other places on earth also, where shaman or witch doctors would be paid to kill somebody by asking a demon to enter into an animal and then that animal would go hang around an individual. It was a possessed animal. In the one case that I know of, it was a dog that was possessed. I got this from an eyewitness. And that dog, you could tell there was a demon inside of it. And these animals would rub up against the person that was the victim. And within a few days, the person was dead. No court would convict the dog of murder. And the dog didn't outwardly murder somebody, but the presence of demons killed that individual. 
Sometimes people take the presence of demons lightly, the presence of kingdoms lightly, as though it was really inconsequential or simply made life a little bit unpleasant or complicated, when in truth it's much more than that. It's not just life or death, it's also kingdoms in conflict. The conflict is real. We have to take these things seriously because they are indeed serious. I'm not saying we see demons under our bed. I am saying, without being paranoid, we do not underestimate them. In Genesis 3-4, the serpent said to the woman, Dying, you shall not die. And what he is saying to her here is, Though you will go into the process of dying... You will not die today. And he made it seem to her like it was worth it. Because he removed the consciousness of a consequence and told her, if there is a consequence, it will not be immediate. It will be somewhere along the line, somewhere down the road perhaps. But he did something even a little bit more insidious which set her up for this that allowed her to disregard the governmental authority of God in favor of something that seemed good to her by sight. When he said to her in verse 1, Is it true that God has said, You shall not eat, from any tree of the garden. And it's really suggesting here, in no uncertain terms, does it make any sense? Now, this was very subtle. He knew that there was a government in place that would protect her and Adam from his influences. So he had to remove that government in order for her to be influenced by him. The government in her life became removed when she stopped submitting to the word of God, the definition from the word of God that was given to her and Adam by God. And in not submitting to that definition, She stepped out from God's government, but what she did not realize, and this was the true purpose of the encounter in Eden, was that she stepped into another government. Now, we are going to serve in a government. The question is, what will I be a servant of? Choose this day whom you will serve. The word of God makes that very specific. Choose this day whom you will serve. And if I choose the government of God, then I will become a servant of the government of God. If I choose another government, and there is only one other government disguised as something else, then I will be a servant of the enemy's government, which is, of course, the government of evil. Evil is a governing system. So, he did this thing where he used the lust pattern 
And, as the original language reveals, he used Eve's appreciation of and admiration of holy angels that she did know from the garden. And then, he took that which she was thinking to get her to this place where she would step out from the government of God. When that happened, then a new government was established. And it was established in her, and then shortly after, it was established in Adam, when he also stepped out from the government of God. The very first thing that happened was they became afraid. They became self-conscious, They became accusatory. They became humiliated. They had all these negative results. They became guilty. And it was all totally needless, but it was all produced by a wrong government. In Romans 7.18... The word of God says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. So much for the self-righteous crowd. This is the apostle saying this. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. Nothing good in me. For to will is present to me, but to work out the good I find not. For what I desire, I do not do. But the evil I do not desire, this I do. Now, when he says evil, evil is a form of government. This is Satan's government. In Psalm 94.20, Satan's throne within the government of evil is the throne of iniquity. The government of evil is based in satanic initiations targeting something in me. This is why there was a need on Satan's part for us to have an old sin nature. In the very same way that the Holy Spirit interacts with the human spirit, which interacts with the human soul, and there is our relationship in practical terms with God, Evil, the government of evil, Satan's government, interacts with our old sin nature. Our old sin nature is the connection point, in the same way that the human spirit is the connection point. The old sin nature, as it interacts with our enemy, will then take the initiations of the enemy through evil, through atmospheric projection, and pass those on to the soul. And then you have things like iniquity, which is basically rebellious emotions. Not that the emotions themselves will be in a hot rebellion, but the emotions bring you to a place where you no longer submit to the Word of God. And so we have to be very careful not to let our old sin nature have a relationship with our soul. Because that's what happened at the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
The old sin nature was developed. That is the death. Dying you shall die. That brought the death. The death process. It did not immediately bring the physical death. But it did bring the death process. And that process had a major impact, among other things, on their genetics. And then it also impacted their psychology. It impacted their self-image. Impacted the way they think. And certainly it impacted their emotions and their decisions as a result. So in my flesh dwells no good thing. The evil that I do not desire, this I do. That evil is governmental. Why? Because even though I don't want it, I still yield to it. There are plenty of worldly governments that people don't want, yet they yield to them because they are governments. Likewise with evil. I don't desire evil, Paul says, but I yield to it. But if I do what I do not desire, it is no longer I working it out, but the sin dwelling in me. Now that is sin singular, not plural, so he's referring to the sin nature. That is the sin nature dwelling in me. So evil is initiating to the sin nature. The sin nature then initiates to the mind and the emotions, sometimes to the self-image, sometimes to the consciousness, but the ultimate result is that the volition yields to that which has been initiated to it. This is government. In Romans 7.22, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, having warred against the law of my mind, and taking me captive by the law of sin, again singular, being in my members. Now, when Paul is talking about laws, we have to understand something. Laws are the implementation of governments. That is why the throne of iniquity works mischief by the law. Laws are implementations of government. So, what he is saying is there was another government present in his physical body, in his sin nature, which is located in our physical body. So, now we have these two governments, the government of God at war with evil, with the government of Satan, the government of God initiating to the human spirit, which then initiates the soul, the government of Satan initiating to the old sin nature, which also then initiates to the soul. These are two governments. We have to choose which government we will serve. If we choose to enter into the government of sin, we will become servants of sin. We will become its slaves. Likewise, if we choose to be the servants of God, We will serve God. We will become, in a manner of speaking, without the negative connotation, slaves. In other words, we will be yielded in our entirety to Him 
and our life with God will be about your will, God, not mine, be done. Yet this is a government that works greatly on our behalf. It is a government of grace, hence the throne of grace. Not every government is an evil government. Satan's government is evil in the world Governments that are satanically influenced, and he tries to influence all of them, but those who, for the most part, yield to the satanic influence, will manifest satanic expression, will manifest Satan's policies, if you will, within their countries. Likewise, those governments that are greatly affected by the kingdom of God, they will also manifest great expression of godly policies. In our country, we see a battle between these two government types all the time. I'm sorry, but murdering is wicked. Murdering is evil. And if I murder children just because they are still within their mother's womb, you cannot give me any form of justification for that that is right with God. It is nonetheless murder. Ending a human life. If you believe it's not a human life, then you are completely ignorant of what human life actually is. All forms of species are defined by their DNA. It is, from the point of conception, 100% human DNA. Life has about six defining manifestations, expressions. All six of those expressions are present in a fertilized egg. Yes, life does begin at the point of fertilization, And it is, by genetic definition, human life. When I was studying biology in college, I had an anatomy professor. She kind of blew my mind, though she was a nice lady in her personality. She was liberal in her mindset. And she said, I have absolutely no doubt that abortion is murder. It is very obvious from a biological standpoint that it is murder, yet she was in favor of it. Don't ask me to explain that one. It is human life. Satan is a killer. That's one of the things he does. He kills in John 10.10. He kills. And so we have these two governments. There are governments that influence us within our own soul, but they are also governments that influence the entire country through those people who are being influenced by those two governments. I cannot emphasize enough the immense importance of people being under God's government. The consequences are devastating when they are not. Sometimes people say, I don't believe that. It's not relevant what someone believes in this sense. Reality exists. And the word of God, being truth, gives us reality. Now, In Psalm 119, 165, great peace is to those who love your law. The word law there is precepts. And nothing shall offend them. 
Paraphrasing this, you can say great government is to those who love your word, your precepts, and nothing shall offend them. The word love is the word Ahab. It's a call participle. And it speaks of love and it also speaks of human appetite for objects such as food, sleep, wisdom. And it also speaks of the act of being a friend. So here, those who are loving, it is a participle, those who are loving the word of God have great government from God in their life. And nothing shall offend them. Offend is mikshol. And it is the means or occasion of stumbling. So those who are actively loving the word of God. If I'm loving the word of God in John 1.14, I am loving God. That is why God said, you shall love the Lord your God. And he called that the great commandment. If I love the Word of God, it's because I love God. If I love God, it's because I love the Word of God. Great government is to those who are actively loving the Word of God. And nothing causes them to stumble. Why? Because there is a government in their life. There is direction, there is definition, there is protection. There is government in their life. The government of God is not so much about control. God doesn't seek to eliminate our volition. The government of God is about two things, definition and protection. And the government of God, because we belong to God, we've been purchased by His blood... Therefore, we are the possession of God. Then the government of God in our lives not only has protection for us, but it also directs our path, our steps. When we transgress, that's when we are not Word of God oriented. Because the government of God, which operates through the Word of God, the Word of God taking over our frame of reference, producing faith in us in Romans 10.17. As it takes over our frame of reference, it also becomes the foundation of all our thinking. And when it's the foundation of all our thinking, then it's also the foundation of everything that follows. Things like healthy emotions, a good, healthy, positive self-image, a healthy consciousness, and of course, good decisions, godly decisions. Those are not things that we strive into. They're not things we enter into through willpower. They're things that we practice because we have the right frame of reference that came from the Word of God and gave us the empowerment for a very rich, satisfying life because we are now experiencing the Galatians 2.20 life of God. When we transgress, we do so because we've entered into the tree of knowledge principle, the tree of knowledge government, if you will, there is only that option. There are only the two governments. 
either the government of God or the government through the old sin nature, which is evil, Satan's government influencing us. Now, Satan does not directly influence most people, as in whispering into their ear, although he can do this, and sometimes he does, but that's not his most common method, where he simply whispers into their ear, here, do this. He does do that, but that's the less common method. The more common method is for them to live at the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He trains them in his government so that the government will become operational in their lives without his direct intervention. Through the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they live in self-orientation and that seems very satisfying to their old sin nature, which is then telling their soul, this is satisfying. In truth, it is the very source of their misery. All difficulty takes place because of the old sin nature. Show me somebody who is consistently miserable and I'll show you somebody who consistently lives in their old sin nature, not in the government of God through the word of God. But they live in their old sin nature. Either that's coming because they have a poor diet of the word of God in their life or it is there because they do not mix faith with the word of God that they have received, one or the other, it's almost invariably one of those two things. The tree of knowledge of good and evil was a mechanism. It seemed good to Eve. And so she ate because it seemed good apart from the definition that God gave, apart from his word. It seemed good. There's nothing good apart from what God gives. That's the deception. Sometimes people go to the good side, the moral side, if you will, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they like to feel like a good person, Sometimes they get into self-righteousness. But the outcome is never good. While they may have a positive self-image, that self-image is fragile. While they may be self-righteous, that self-righteousness will quickly lead to self-centeredness and then self-pity. These things, as long as the illusion of being good, something good in me, is maintained... As long as the lie persists, their conscience is appeased. But then something happens in their life. And it challenges them and it brings out what is. And that's where the self-centered or the self-pity aspects of self-orientation come out. Be careful about self-centeredness and self-pity. They make a lot of sense to the old sin nature. And therefore, the person who is habitually living in their old sin nature, their soul will readily accept self-centeredness and self-pity as being perhaps reasonable or in some other way good. But yet, it's their very death 
Sometimes you see people who live in this negativity, who see people who are living in self-pity or self-centeredness, self-orientation, what have you, and all its devastating manifestations of misery in their life, but they maintain it because they are deceived and their soul thinks it's good because their old sin nature has been initiated to by the enemy and lied to. Sometimes you see these people and you just want to ask, how much do you want to give away your life to something that is so meaningless when God gave you life to be super abundant and amazingly satisfying. How much do you want to give away? Why give your life away? Why not live your life in a way that satisfies? And it doesn't come through your circumstances and it doesn't even come through your outward decisions. It comes through the government that is operational in your life. Why give your life away when God gave it to you as a precious gift? Sometimes people know that they are not right with God, but yet they are okay with that. And it's reflected in the fact that they never make those choices to step away from the wrong government and into God's government. And they may even lament it in some cases, but ultimately they're fine with it. There are demons who when they were holy angels and Satan challenged them, they weren't angry with God. They simply chose very poorly. It's akin to that. And then, they fell under a government. When we transgress, we transgress because we enter into the government that Satan initiated through the tree of knowledge of good and evil to cause us to be self-oriented, which gives life to our old sin nature and allows him to govern us. If we do not transgress, it is because we are loving the Word of God. And by loving the Word of God, we enter into the government of God, the government of grace. In Psalm 16 and 11, you will show me the path of life. For in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So what he is saying is you will give me the word of God for my life. In your presence is fullness of joy. When the word of God becomes the light to the path of my life, I walk in the presence of God 
because I am in agreement with God. In Amos 3.3, can two walk together unless they are agreed? No, they cannot. So through the word of God, I'm in agreement with God and now I have the joy of God because I'm in the presence of God, not through striving, but through having the proper frame of reference. Do you have joy? Ask yourself. Be honest. Not condemned, but honest. Do you have joy? God says that in His presence it's fullness of joy that comes from the Word of God being the light that gives me a path in life with God. If you don't have joy, then enter into the government of God through the Word of God. And it will produce joy in your heart. At your right hand, it continues, there are pleasures forevermore. Right hand speaks of strength and authority. In your authority, in having your government in my life, there are pleasures forevermore. We don't often think of that. We sometimes think that the government of God is a government of a cross or somehow the government of suffering or somehow the government of being deprived of something. But that's not actually true. The government of God is a government whereby you find pleasures forevermore. It is a throne of God, this government of grace. It is a government and one of the manifestations of this government of God is tremendous kindness from God in Ephesians 2.7. I enter into the practical experience of God's kindness by being under the government of God. I enter into tremendous joy by being under the government of God. I enter into tremendous satisfaction and contentment in my life by being under the government of God. Those things are lacking if the government of God is lacking. Those things are in abundance if the government of God is present. Do you have joy? You can. It's not hard. It's much easier than trying to live under the government of the enemy as he initiates to your old sin nature and robs your joy, robs your life, robs your pleasure, robs your contentment. But you can't be passive toward the enemy. I'm not saying you strive. I'm saying you start receiving from God. You can't look to your pastor, you can't look to your husband or your wife or kids or friends or whoever else is there, your teachers, whoever it is, and say, well, I will have a relationship with God through them. No, it doesn't work that way. The Holy Spirit is living in you. He's not living in them vicariously for you. While He is living in them, He's also living in you. Your relationship with God is your relationship with God. The government of God is there for you to have government in your life. And when you respond to that government in faith, 
then the government becomes operational. In other words, you respond to the word of God in faith obedience, the government becomes a very practical reality. And the just live by faith. In Galatians 2.20, because we are one new man with Christ, It's no longer us that live. We've been crucified. But Christ lives in us. And the life which we now live, we live by the faith of the Son of God. It's the faith of the Son of God. Some translations want to put toward or in the Son of God. That's not correct. It is of the Son of God, possessive. It is Christ's faith in you because you are the one new man with him he is your mind and he initiates his thoughts and produces his faith in you respond to it and then you have a government and that government becomes your protection your satisfaction, your joy. It gives tremendous pleasure. It takes care of you in every way imaginable. It becomes your authority. In Matthew sixteen twenty four, Jesus said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. This is also a poorly understood portion sometimes. Deny himself does not mean being ascetic. What it actually means is let him forsake the enemy's government in his life through self-orientation. Take up his cross is saying let him enter into the government of God because righteousness and peace kissed each other, submit to each other at the cross and then follow me. Forsake the enemy's government in your old sin nature and take up the government of God through the word of God. The righteousness of God in Romans 1.17 is revealed from faith to faith. is revealed when the Word of God in Romans 10.17 produces faith in my frame of reference. And I start walking in faith obedience. Again, this is not striving. This is simply decisions that are made on the basis of correct thinking because the Word of God is my frame of reference. The righteousness of God is revealed. When I live in faith obedience over and over. This is how righteousness and peace kiss. Yield through submission. When by faith I yield to the government of God that comes through the word of God. The righteousness of God is revealed in my life. That righteousness has tremendous benefits for my life. 
the things of the world, the things of the enemy, the things that have damaged believers before they became believers are washed away by the righteousness of God. It's revealed by one decision toward faith obedience followed by another decision toward faith obedience. Eventually this makes up a lifetime as the just live by faith. Now faith obedience is the throne of grace in my heart. It's a manifestation of the kingdom of peace in our hearts. When righteousness submitted and yielded to peace, the result was that we now have the kingdom of God functioning in our lives. The kingdom of God always is for us. Always takes care of us, always protects us, always provides for us. God is a good ruler of a good kingdom. He's the ultimate king. And his citizens, his children, who obey the kingdom, receive the full benefits of that kingdom. But not only in eternity, they receive them here and now. Because when righteousness has yielded to peace, the cross is produced in our lives. And that's where we walk with God. So that we have joy and contentment and satisfaction and all the things that come with the government of God. Amen? If you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior and you don't know where you're going to go when you die, Simply pray, Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I receive you as my Savior. Thank you for loving me so much that you died for me so I can have eternal life with you. Amen.